chapter 32, which is page 59, and this is the last chapter of the confession, and it ends with the, uh, with, with, it goes out with a bang, <clears throat> with a bang, uh, and that is the last judgment, or the day of judgment, and this doctrine is central to the teaching of the Bible. Central. And if you do not understand this doctrine, you cannot understand the Bible, you cannot understand salvation. Even the psalm that we just sang, Psalm 32. Why is it that the man whose sin is covered is so blessed? And why is it that the wicked man will have sorrows multiplied? What is it that brings this about? It's the day of judgment. It is the day of judgment that we must have in our mind and in our eye at all times. Or we cannot live the Christian life. We cannot have wisdom without fear of the Lord, and you can't have fear of the Lord without the day of judgment. This is why we fear God. It's because there is a day of judgment, there is a life to come, there is a reward for the righteous, and there is a day of punishment for all the wicked and for all the ungodly, and that should cause us to tremble. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10? Do not fear those who kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul. I will tell you the one that you should fear. Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell in hell. Fear God who is able to judge and to destroy you in hell for all eternity. So no wisdom, no fear of God, no salvation, no right understanding of God. You can't understand the love of God without understanding the judgment of God. Everything, this doctrine is crucial to everything in the Bible. And you can't understand the world and why the world was created, why God created the world without the day of judgment. So we have to have this in our mind and see how important this doctrine is. And I say that because it is neglected today. Many people do not teach and preach the day of judgment. They don't preach a gospel that includes the day of judgment. But if our gospel does not include the day of judgment then it is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a false gospel of our own making. Now, I say that because of Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Notice here that the apostle, the holy apostle, the holy apostle who was led by the Holy Spirit of God, writing the very words of God, Notice what he says in Romans 2.14. It says, When Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Notice that he says, on the day, which is the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So according to the gospel of the Apostle Paul, in Romans is, of all the books of the Bible, the clearest, most systematic presentation of the gospel. He says that the gospel, his gospel, includes the day of judgment. When God judges the secrets of men, by Christ Jesus. So how can we preach the gospel if we're not preaching day of judgment? Right? If we're not preaching day of judgment, this is what we have to do. Isn't that what Paul did in Acts 17 when he went there in Athens and was there with those uh, men arguing and debating with them? He preached to them about the day of judgment. He told them that there's a day fixed in which God will judge all men. And he's given proof of this by rising, raising him from the dead. Therefore, you must repent of your sins. Isn't this what Jesus preached when he preached? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And John the Baptist, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We have to repent because there is a day of judgment. And people will be consigned either to heaven or to hell and that will be realized and brought about on the day of judgment. Also, notice Acts 24. Acts 24, <coughs> verse 24 and 25. Acts 24, 24 and 25. 
says, but some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, so here, the Apostle Paul has an audience with Felix and Drusilla, and the content, what he's talking to them about, is faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, this is what they're talking about when he is debating and talking with them. Then notice verse 25. What specifically was he speaking about to them that is defined as faith in Christ Jesus? 25. As he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. When he's speaking of faith in Christ Jesus, if we ask people today, what is faith in Christ Jesus? Define faith in Christ Jesus. How many people would say righteousness, self-control, and judgment? This isn't what's coming into their mind. They're thinking love. They're thinking grace. They're thinking mercy. Certainly those things rightly understood are included in what it means for faith in Christ Jesus. But what is the Apostle Paul talking to them about? Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And why is it that he's terrified? Because of the judgment to come. Because of the knowledge of sin and the reality of a day of judgment in which God will judge the world in righteousness and he will recompense men according to what they deserve. That's why he's terrified and frightened. Not with a good fear that leads to repentance, but a fear that says, get away from me. I don't want to hear you talk about these things and bother me with them anymore. So there, faith in Christ Jesus must include judgment to come the day of judgment. And again, how can we preach salvation without day of judgment? What are they being saved from? Right, if not the day of judgment, if not the eternal fires of hell where a man will be consigned on the day of judgment. Also, Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Romans 3, 1 to 8, and this passage teaches us that God has created the world so that he might judge the world. This is the reason God created the world, so that he could judge the world in righteousness and manifest his glory in the salvation of the elect and in the damnation of the reprobate. This is the purpose for why the world exists, to manifest God's glory, which cannot happen without Judgment without the day of judgment. Romans 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some do not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. But rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some clay that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Here, the apostle is demonstrating why it is that the Jews who have the law are still under sin. Right? That's the argument he makes in chapter 2. That circumcision is only a value if you keep the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And that one is not a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. Right? That just because someone has circumcision, and just because someone has access to the oracles of God, does not guarantee that they will be saved that they will be better than a Gentile who does not have circumcision. And so he's asking this question, then what value is it to be a Jew? Right? What advantage does the Jew have? If it doesn't guarantee salvation, then how are they in any better position than the Gentiles? And he says, well, they are in a better position because they have access to the oracles of God. They have more access, more accessibility to salvation 
to the oracles of God which teach faith in Christ Jesus. But having access to the oracles of God is only beneficial if what? If you believe it. If you believe it and if you obey the word of God. Having the access, having it near you without obeying it is not a benefit. Actually, it leads to a greater condemnation, right? A greater condemnation. And so he's asking these questions that from the perspective of an objector, right? You have the Jews, they have the oracles of God. Not all of them believe, but does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Does this make God unfaithful because all of the physical descendants of Abraham don't believe the oracles of God? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Because God never promised to Abraham that every single one of his physical descendants would be saved. God promised to Abraham that all of his spiritual descendants would be saved through his one descendant who is Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, no, of course not. May it never be. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. As it is written, you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. When people seek to impugn the character and nature of God with their own words, on the day of judgment, God will be justified and they will be proven to be liars. This is what people do today. They think that they are more righteous than God. They have more understanding than God. That they sit in judgment against God. And they get away with it momentarily in this life, but in the life to come, then they're going to have everything flipped. And instead of them sitting in judgment against God, God will sit in judgment against them, and their mouth will be stopped, and everyone will be held accountable to God, and God will prevail when he is judged by wicked men. Then in verse 5, he says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, is, is that true? Yes, our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God. The contrast between light and darkness, right? Whenever you have darkness in contrast with light, you have a greater understanding, a greater demonstration of the glory of the light. And our unrighteousness, the sin of man, demonstrates, makes more obvious, more manifest, the righteousness of God. And this is true. And God has ordained this in the world. The sin of man in contrast to his own holiness and righteousness, which makes it more clear and makes it more obvious. So then what should we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? How is it fair for God to inflict wrath on men for their unrighteousness when their unrighteousness serves to demonstrate the righteousness of God? People will say this isn't fair. Now, he says, I'm speaking in human terms. He wants to be very clear When I'm saying this, I'm not speaking as a rational man, as a sane man. I'm not speaking as a spiritual man. I'm not speaking as one who has the mind of Christ. I'm speaking as an objector, as a blasphemer of God, who's bringing up these objections to the Word of God. So I'm speaking in with human wisdom, anticipating what the blasphemers of God are going to say so that I can cut them off before they even say it. That's why he's bringing these things up. Then he says... May it never be. May it never be. May we never accuse God of unrighteousness in his judgment. No, God can do no wrong. He always does what is right. But he says, otherwise, how will God judge the world? How will God judge the world if sin doesn't enter into the world? How will he judge the world in righteousness without the existence of sin in the world? The point being is why did God create the world? What is the world destined for? How does this present world end with a day of judgment? This is what is happening. And God has appointed this day and he has appointed men to be born, to live, and to die, and to face a day of judgment, and either to enter into eternal paradise or to enter into the eternal torments of hell. And according to Romans chapter 9, he does this to demonstrate his own glory. His own glory in vessels of mercy and in vessels of wrath. Vessels of mercy, vessels of wrath. The vessels of mercy demonstrate the love, the mercy, the grace of God. This is why they exist, to make manifest these glorious attributes of God, And then the vessels of wrath exist to make manifest for all eternity 
the wrath of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God. And can anyone complain and say this is not fair? No. And why is that? Doesn't the potter have rights over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for common use and another for uncommon use? Notice Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. The potter has rights over the clay to make from the same lump, the same lump of man, one vessel, one person for an honorable use and another person for a common use. Using the imagery of pottery in the household. One pot from the same lump is used and is given an honorable use. It's made into a decorative uh, vase or some piece of artwork that is displayed on the mantelpiece and everyone looks at it. Another vessel from the same lump is made and it's used as a latrine to go to the bathroom in. It has a common dishonor or as a trash can, a dishonorable use. Can the clay argue and say, the one that is the trash can, can it bicker and complain against the potter and say, this isn't fair, this isn't right, that you made me like this? Also, can the one that is a, uh, a beautiful ornament, can it boast over the other one and say, I'm better than you? No, because both of them came from the sum lump, and both of them are what they are because of the will of whom? The potter. Because of the will of the potter. And this is how it is with men. With men who are literally clay in the hands of God. Didn't God make us from the dirt? From the clay he formed man? And can he not do what he wants with his own? Can he not make... One man into a vessel for honorable use to display the riches of his mercy and another man for a common, un- a common use to display his wrath and destruction. God can do whatever he pleases. And this is what God has determined to do. This is what he is doing in this present world. And all of this will be revealed and manifested on the day of judgment. On the day of judgment, there is a finality Right? It's being revealed now in that those that are vessels of mercy are being manifested now through salvation, right? through sanctification, through what God is doing in them. Those that are vessels of wrath, they are being manifested now that God's wrath abides on them because they have not believed in the word of God. But what they will be for all eternity has not yet been manifested. The glory that God will bestow upon the elect and the damnation, the humility, the eternal destruction that he will bestow upon the reprobate. It has not yet been realized, but it is going to be realized. And what is the day, the final day, that brings it about? Day of judgment. It is the day of judgment where all of these things are made manifest and known for all eternity. What is hidden will not be hidden anymore, but will become obvious and plain to the light of day. And this is how it will be for all eternity. Eternity. Also, one last passage. Psalm 9. Psalm 9, verses 7 to 9. Psalm 9, verses 7 to 9. It says, But the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. 
For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So there, God has established his throne for judgment. Meaning this is the reason it exists. This is why it's here. It's for judgment. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. So if, when we think about God, we don't think about day of judgment. We don't think about justice and righteousness, holiness, wrath, vengeance, judgment. Then we're not thinking about God correctly, not according to the Bible. When we think about Jesus Christ, if we don't see him as a righteous judge, we're not thinking about Jesus Christ correctly. We're thinking of him in a false way according to our own desires. So all of this being said, is the day of judgment important? Yes, it's very important, and we have to believe in it. We have to believe in it, and not only in our mind, mentally, but in our life. In our life. It's the day of judgment that causes us to be sanctified in the fear of the Lord, to pursue holiness with trembling. It is the day of judgment that causes us to live an upright and godly life, knowing that everything that we do, every word that we speak, will be brought into judgment on that day. So we have to have this in our mind at all times, and that God would teach us this, and that we would tremble at the day of judgment. Why should the demons have more fear and reverence to God than the saints? Because in James chapter 2, it says that the demons believe God is one, and they shudder. They tremble at the thought of the judgment that's coming upon them. They know that they're going to be judged one day and that they're going to go to hell. But most men have no fear of God. They don't tremble at the day of judgment at all. But that shouldn't be true of us. We know about it and we should tremble at the day of judgment and then use that to cause us to live a godly life. Okay, so chapter 32, paragraph 1. It says, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given by the Father. In that day, the apostate angels will be judged. So also all people who have lived on the earth will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive a reckoning according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil." There, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one that God has given the honor, the privilege, the glory of judging the world in righteousness. He has conferred this honor upon the Son because of his humility. He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It says in Philippians chapter 2, 6 to 11. Well, when will every knee bow before Christ? When they come before him on the day of judgment. All power and judgment is given to him by the Father, and they will all come cringing before Christ, and they will answer to him on the day of judgment. This is the hope of the believer. Now, the hope that we will be delivered from all of our enemies, that they who persecute us now will have to answer for what they've done to our king. And he'll say, well, who do you think you are? Why did you treat my people like that? Why did you persecute them? Why did you ridicule them for living a godly life? Why would you do such a thing? Don't you know how wicked this is? And then they will answer to him for their crimes. And who's going to defend them on that day? They'll have no one to help them out. Acts chapter 17. And yes, it is Jesus Christ who is given this. Gentle Jesus. Acts 17, 30. Acts 17.30 says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So here, the Apostle Paul, when preaching to strangers that he doesn't know, Gentiles in the city of Athens, he gets right to the point, doesn't he? He doesn't beat around the bush. 
He doesn't build a 10-year relationship before he gets to the day of judgment. He starts off with the day of judgment. Actually, it's the punchline of his whole sermon, the end, the crescendo, right? Here at the end is day of judgment. This is what you need to know. So do you have to wait 10 years, a year, a couple of months, build a relationship before you talk about the day of judgment? No. How can you preach the gospel without talking about the day of judgment? And he tells them that he has fixed a day. God has fixed a day. He's appointed a day. And if God has appointed it, it will not be rescinded. So any hope that people have that God's going to change his mind and say, you know what, I was going to do this day of judgment, but I've decided that people don't like it. You know, he hired a PR firm. He talked to some people and they said, you know, we really don't like it. So I'm going to get rid of it. Is God going to do that? No, because who is God's counselor? Who does he consult? When he makes decisions himself, he doesn't consult any man. God consults himself and God has fixed and appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. And that man is the man Christ Jesus. He is the one who will judge. He's given that honor to him and he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus Christ will judge the world in righteousness. And as a man doing that, he will also confer that honor to us. We will share with him in that judgment. This is the inheritance that he gives to his children. Do you not know that we will judge angels? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which we'll read momentarily. Also, John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And verse 22. 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Then also verse 27. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Here, the Father judges, not even the Father judges anyone. Not that the father is uninterested or uninvolved in this. He means in terms of the instrument that is used to judge men, he's given that to the son. The father has appointed, he's delegated this authority that is his, and he gives it to the son, and now the son will be the one who executes it in the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, he is the one who will be the one that they answer to who judges men on the day of judgment. And the Father has given him everything that he needs in terms of authority and power to execute that office perfectly. With perfect justice and righteousness, he will do it, showing no partiality. Then next, in that day, the apostate angels will be judged. The apostate angels. So he will judge the angels and people, right? Moral creatures, moral beings that have been created by God, whether visible or invisible. He's not going to judge dogs and cats and animals because they do not have a soul. They, they live and they die and then they are no more. But angels have an eternal component, the spirit, though they don't have bodies. And then men have bodies and souls and they have eternality as well, given to them by God, and they will be judged. So angels and men will be judged. And here, they're speaking of first angels. Apostate angels will be judged. Fallen angels. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren and brother goes to law with brother? and that before unbelievers. So here, in rebuking the church because of what they're doing in terms of 
going before unbelieving judges and dealing with these matters that should be dealt with in the church when there's disputes in this way. He's chiding them because they're not living up according to their calling, right? And he's telling them, don't you understand and know that we're going to judge the world. The saints will judge the world with Jesus Christ, right? When Christ judges the world, right, what is true of Christ becomes true of us. He rose from the grave, we will rise from the grave. He has eternal life, we will have eternal life. He will judge the world, we will judge the world with Christ, right? We will do this with him under his authority. Well, if we're going to judge the world on the day of judgment, then why can't we make judgments now, according to the Bible, to handle these trivial matters between one brother and another brother in terms of civil issues that are taking place in this life? And then he even brings up in verse 3, do you not know we will judge angels? Angels. The reprobate angels, the fallen angels, they will stand before us as well in Christ on the day of judgment, and we will judge them and condemn them because of their wickedness. And if we can do that with angels on the day of judgment, then certainly we have the ability to make proper judgments using the word of God concerning good and evil in this life and to help one another in dealing with these matters. But that's the point he's bringing up. We will judge angels. Also, Jude verse 6 Jude, verse 6. There it says, In angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So there, these angels that are fallen angels that didn't keep their proper domain or their proper abode, he's kept them in eternal bonds in darkness waiting for the judgment of the great day. So now they are in a temporary state where they are in bondage and they are waiting for the ultimate day of judgment that will come upon them. So the apostate angels then will be judged. Then next, so also all people who have lived on the earth will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive a reckoning according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. So all men who have lived from Adam till the end of the world, every single one will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and everyone will be judged, and they will give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and then they will receive a reckoning according to what they've done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, he's not saying here that everyone has a scale, and their scale is going to be brought forward on the day of judgment, and their good deeds will be on one side, and their evil deeds will be on the other side, and as long as their good outweighs their evil, then they'll get a pass and they'll go to heaven, and if they're bad outweighs their good, then they'll go to hell. So they're not teaching works-based salvation. But the day of judgment, our works are brought forward as the manifestation or the evidence as to whether or not we are righteous or wicked, whether we're a believer or an unbeliever, a child of God or a child of the devil, right? Those who are the children of God, their good fruit will be brought forward on the day of judgment as the evidence, as the demonstration that they are under the grace of God, that they belong to Christ, that Christ died for their sins, was raised for their justification, that they have been regenerated by the Spirit, and that they have the forgiveness of sins. And then those who are reprobate, the unbelievers, their works, their deeds will be brought forward to prove and manifest that they are evil trees, that they are wicked people who do not know the grace of God and who remain in their sin, and the wrath of God abides on them. So this is why they mention that the works are brought forward to prove what kind of a person the man is, whether he belongs to God or whether he belongs to the devil. But our belonging to God or belonging to the devil is based upon the will of God, based upon God's election, and then it's based upon the grace of God for us to become a child of God. So in no way does the Bible or are they teaching works-based salvation, but works are used 
as the manifestation or the evidence of whom someone belongs to. This is the same as we read yesterday in men's Bible study from James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. How do you prove whether someone has true faith or not? By their works. You bring it forward, and then that is what is used to manifest their true faith. But the faith didn't come from them. The true faith came from God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Second Corinthians 5, 9 says, Therefore we also have our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So there we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and then we will be rewarded for his deeds in the body, whether good or bad. Now, again, here, he's not addressing how it is that someone who is born a sinner is able to produce good deeds, right? That's John chapter 3 or John chapter 1 or many other places in the Bible, like Ephesians chapter 2, where we have to be converted or changed. But he's simply here saying that it is the good or the bad, the deeds of the body that are brought forward to determine whether one is going to heaven or hell, whether they are a child of God or a child of the devil. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And this is necessary because people will trust in Anything other than uh, reality, right? They want to believe lies. And this is why the Bible is constantly examining, uh, telling us to examine our fruit and why it's always saying that on the day of judgment, the fruit is brought forward so that we don't convince ourselves that we're a good tree even though all we produce is bad fruit. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments. Right? Because everything's going to be brought to light in the day of judgment. Whether it is uh, hidden, secret, good, evil, it doesn't matter. All of it's going to be brought to light on the day of judgment. And that's why we need to live in the fear of the Lord, and obey God. Because we know that all of our deeds will be brought forward on the day of judgment. Matthew 12. Matthew chapter 12. In verses 33 to 37. 1233. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Right? So here, he's telling them, imploring them to, again, examine their fruit. Right? The good tree bears good fruit. The evil tree bears bad fruit. At this point, the people he's talking to, what kind of tree are they? They're evil, right? They're a brood of vipers, is what he calls them. So how can you, being a viper... How can you, being an evil man, speak what is good? Because it is from the heart that the mouth speaks. You have evil in your heart, therefore you have evil on your lips. The good man has a good heart, not by his own power, but by the power of God. And, but from that good heart that's filled with the Spirit of God and the Word of God, his mouth speaks the Word of God. Good things come out of his mouth. 
But the evil man who has an evil, sinful heart, his heart is filled with sin, and then that sin comes out of his mouth in the things that he says. And every careless word will be brought into judgment. Every careless word. So judgment is meticulous. Every word, every thought, every deed will be brought into judgment. And by your word, you will be justified, and by your word, you will be condemned. Again, this is the same as we read yesterday from James chapter 2, right? His faith was completed by his works, or his faith was manifested by his works. And in this case, he's talking about the mouth. The mouth either proves that a man is justified by grace through faith, or the mouth proves that he's still dead in his trespasses and sins. And what he has said will be brought forward on the day of judgment to prove that, to prove and manifest that reality. Romans 14. Romans 14, 10 to 12. Romans 14, 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So there, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We'll all give an account of ourselves to God. So we shouldn't judge one another unjustly. Right? We shouldn't judge one another based upon our own wisdom and our own standard of righteousness because we're going to stand before God and he's going to judge us based on his standard of wisdom and righteousness. Now, in that regard, we should judge ourselves now and we should judge one another now based upon the standard of God. But here, they're judging one another based upon some standard, some criteria that they've invented that's not coming from the Bible. And they don't have any authority or right to do that. Because there's only one lawgiver and judge, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to judge ourselves based upon his word, his standard, his righteousness, not based upon our own thoughts and ideas. This is why we can't add to the Bible. Because when we do, we are setting ourselves up as a judge that is wiser than Jesus Christ. That's what we think of ourselves when we invent something outside the Bible and then impose it on ourselves and other people. That we are a better determiner of righteousness than Jesus Christ. And we know better how to judge men than Jesus Christ. But has God committed judgment to you and me? Nope. Apart from Christ? No, only through Christ and that through his holy word. Okay, then lastly, Matthew 25, 32 to 46. Here he teaches day of judgment. Matthew 25, 32. It says, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now here, notice, he's separating men using this illustration of sheep and goats. Right, sheep and goats. So there are sheep and there are goats. Sheep being righteous, goats being wicked. This is what they are by nature, right? They're already this by nature. Then he's going to show that what they are by their nature is what they produced in their life, right? In their life. We know that in our natural state, we're all goats. We're all born goats, and then we become sheep by regeneration, by the miracle of God, the power of God through conversion. We are transferred from being a goat to being a sheep, one of his sheep. Okay, then verse 34. How does he prove that they, the one is a sheep and the other one is a goat? Then the king will say on the, to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, and here the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So here the proof that the sheep are sheep is their love for the brethren. Their love for the brethren. Love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. That's who he's talking about here. The least of these, my brethren, these are the brethren of Christ. This is the church of Christ. And when the sheep see their fellow sheep hungry, what do they do? They give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, they give him something to drink. If he's in prison, they go visit him in prison. If he's poorly clothed, they go and they clothe him because they have love for one another. They love their neighbor as themselves. And they did it to them, they are doing it to Christ because the sheep are the body of Christ. Christ is the head, he is the good shepherd, this is the sheep. Therefore, to do it to them is to do it to the shepherd or to do it to the head. It is their love for the brethren, their love for the saints, that prove that they are sheep. Okay, now the goats. What proves that the goats are not sheep? That they still have a dead, sinful nature? This is verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which was prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord. Notice that. What do they call him? Lord. Lord. They're calling him Lord. They're claiming to be children of God, claiming to be sheep, but their deeds prove otherwise, that they're not really sheep. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The proof that the goats are goats and not sheep is that they don't love their neighbor, right? They saw the believers hungry and they gave them nothing to eat. Thirsty, they gave them nothing to drink. In prison, they didn't visit them. And likely, these are the ones that were imprisoning them. These are the ones that are making them hungry, making them thirsty, persecuting them, tormenting them day and night. But they were doing this to Christ's body, to his sheep. So is he going to let them into heaven? Of course not, no. They're going to eternal punishment because they are of their father, the devil. And their works are the same as their father, the devil. The devil hates the church and persecutes the church. And his followers do the same thing. Whereas the sheep love the church because Christ loves the church. And then they do as Christ does toward the church. So it is the deeds brought forward to prove whether one is a sheep or one is a goat. And this on the day of judgment. And then they go into eternal punishment or eternal life. At that point, their destiny, their condition is fixed for all eternity. It's either life or punishment. And there's no reversing it once it takes place. There is a chasm fixed, as it says in Luke 16, and we cannot come to you and you cannot come to us. But it is fixed on that day and it will never be reversed. So, Today, then, is why today is the day of salvation. Because in this life, while we still have life, this is the moment, this is the time when a person can quit being a goat and become a sheep by the power of God. But we must believe in Christ, and we must repent of our sins, and then we must do those deeds that are in accordance with repentance. Today is the day of salvation not the day of judgment. The day of judgment is not the day of salvation. That's the day of judgment. Today is the day of salvation. So if you hear his voice today, what should you do? You shouldn't harden your heart, but rather you should believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So let us be those who believe and are saved, not those who disbelieve 
and who are destroyed. All right, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you, Lord, that your word is given to us, Lord, to prepare us, Lord, for the day of judgment. Lord, there is, we have absolute certainty and confidence, Lord, that there is a day coming in which you will judge the world in righteousness. Lord, this is more certain, Lord, than, than our, even our very lives. Lord, then the fact that the sun will rise in, in the morning or the things that we see in the created order, Lord, that continue year after year after year, Lord, that give to us stability. Lord, even these things are not as stable and certain as the day of judgment that you have fixed. So, Lord, may we not believe lies and think that there is no day of judgment or, Lord, think that on that day, Lord, you will judge on the curve, that, Lord, you will judge very lightly and that everyone will make it into heaven, or nearly everyone will make it, Lord, regardless of what they did in this life. Lord, may these lies not come into our mind. But Lord, may we be certain and convinced of the day of judgment. And Lord, may it cause us to tremble and fear before you. Lord, knowing that you can destroy body and soul in hell. Lord, knowing that you will cast the wicked into the eternal fires, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, there is only one way for us to escape this day of judgment. Lord, for us to stand on that day and to not be ashamed. And Lord, it is only through Jesus Christ, through his perfect righteousness, Lord, that we can be made righteous so that we can stand before you approved on that day. But Lord, we know that if we have become partakers of him, Lord, we have risen with him, even now. The old man is gone and the new man has come. And that it is impossible that your grace would be in our life, Lord, to save us on the day of judgment that is not already saving us from the power of sin, even now. But that, Lord, your grace changes us It makes us into new men, and it causes us to walk in newness of life. Lord, it causes us to bear good fruit. Lord, to keep the commandments of God. So, Lord, may we not believe lies and delusions concerning ourselves, concerning the day of judgment, but rather, Lord, may we judge ourselves truly so that we would not enter into judgment. And, Lord, help us to examine our life. Lord, to see if, if our fruit and what is true of us matches up with the Bible. Lord, so that we might have confidence that we will be approved on that day. Lord, may we live with this in our mind at all times, our eyes fixed upon this day, so that we would fear you and that we would keep your commandments and that, Lord, we would live in a circumspect way, Lord, judging, Lord, our thoughts, our deeds, Lord, even our words, that we would not utter even careless words before you, knowing that they will be brought into judgment. So, Lord, may we live in the fear of you, and, Lord, may we live with the day of judgment on our mind and in our hearts. And, Lord, may we have the fear of you today so that we do not enter into judgment on that day. So, Lord, help us in these things and cause us to walk in your ways. Lord, give us safety as we travel home today, and we pray for your blessing to continue upon us, Lord, throughout the remainder of this Lord's Day and throughout this week. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.